for all of the many different uh, distinctions that separate human beings one from the other, there is an experience that unites us all. There is going to come a moment when all of those peaks and valleys which have seemed to define our own particular journey as unique or appeared perhaps to distinguish our experience from others will all resolve to one simple pattern that defines us all, that unites us all. Our hearts will go lub-dub, lub-dub, lub Flatline. This is the experience that is shared by three people every second, by a hundred and eighty people every minute, by nearly 11,000 people every hour, maybe by even the person to whom that ambulance was going just a moment ago. Every day, more than a quarter million people become flatliners. Despite all of our efforts to overcome it, the death rate for human beings is still running at about exactly 100%. A dependable 100%. How do you feel about that? How do you feel, really feel, about that reality? Some through history have regarded that reality as actually a gift to remember. It was King David of ancient Israel who once wrote, Show me, O Lord, my life's end. Show me my life's end, God, and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. So I take it seriously. So I don't waste it. So I make the most of the time, perhaps. Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, actually hired a servant whose job it was to come to him and stand in front of him every single day and simply utter these words, Philip, you will die. In case his royal majesty would forget it, become too puffed up, full of himself, you will die. He wanted to remember It was the frequent custom of ancient merchants, I'm told, to pen in large letters on the first page of their accounting books the words memento mori, which means think of death. Perhaps so that they'd be sure to remember to collect their debts, to settle up accounts before it was too late. How often do you think of death? How often is it on your mind? When we're children, we tend to disregard death almost completely, don't we? 
I mean, dying is for old people, you know, people 30 and the like. When we're in our teenage years, we tend to defy mortality. We take all kinds of risks, and, and we act as if we couldn't ever do anything but just live forever. Death couldn't happen to me, we think. In our young adult years, we tend to distract ourselves from this reality. We don't want to even consider the end of the journey. Hey, I'm just so busy building a life here. Please, don't bring up the subject to me. I haven't even fully lived like I want to live. And by our middle years, we've seen enough death. We've encountered enough decay and loss, perhaps, to have started to actively and cleverly work to deny the reality ahead. I think to myself, if I just buy the ab buster, I know I can be 20 again. Honey, would you get me another jar of that face cream when you're out at the store? Will you buy me some more of that hair stuff? And then in our latter years, if we're blessed to have them, we're just trying to delay. What we know now is not going to make an exception for us. Doc, is there anything else you can give me for my condition? Where are you on this great lifeline these days? King Solomon, one of the wisest men who ever lived, once penned these words, there is a time for everything. I suppose a time to disregard it or to defy it or to distract it or deny it or to delay it. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, but this much is true There's a time to be born, and there is a time to die. How far away is the flat line for you? Few people have been as honest about the feelings that this thought kicks up for most of us than St. Woody of Allen. Some of you know him. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. (laughs) What do I dislike about death? He asked. It's the hours. But Alan also understands that, that death is the great equalizer. No matter where we've come from, no matter how we look, no matter how much money or influence we have, at the end of the game, writes Alan, the king and the pawn go back in the same box. We all die. But what if the end of life's game if our going into the box is actually the beginning of a larger game. What if if death turned out to actually be one of those frightening, laborious passages 
that defined every other season of growth in our lives? What if it turns out that, that, that death is actually a movement, something like that frightening, laborious movement we once made from the tiny world of the womb to something so much larger than we could take in and understand at that point in our journey? What if it was true? What if there is an afterlife? It seems almost too good to believe, doesn't it? As Woody Allen speaks for a lot of people by saying, I don't believe in an afterlife, although I am bringing a change of underwear, (laughs) just in case. A lot of us live. Sometimes even people that go to church live with a wavering hope about the life beyond. And this, this impulse, this instinct that there is something beyond remains one of the most persevering qualities of the human species, as you may know. In his marvelous book, Heaven, which I would just commend to you because it is the most exhaustive treatment of the subject I've ever read, Randy Alcorn writes this, the sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian aborigines pictured the afterlife as a distant island beyond the western horizon, while the Finns, thousands of miles away, also pictured it as a distant island, but in their case, to the faraway east. The Mexicans, the Peruvians, the Polynesians, all believed that after we die, we go to the sun or to the moon. Native Americans believed that in the afterlife, they would have the opportunity to hunt the spirits of buffalo. An ancient Babylonian legend refers to a resting place of heroes and actually hints that it is centered by a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, we find the embodied uh, bodies of people who have maps placed beside them Why? So they would have a guidebook to the certain life of the larger world into which they were now entering. The Romans, if you've seen the movie Gladiator, you know this. They believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields. And the Roman philosopher Seneca summed up the hopes of so many throughout the ages when he wrote, the day thou fearest as the last is but the birthday of eternity. The Bible teaches that that much is true. That you and I have been created for life that goes on forever. You will hear some say, I know that this notion is simply a mental device that human beings have evolved to help them cope with the stress of death. And if that is true, then it is a particularly strange adaptation, one that is inconsistent with every other basic appetite evolution has apparently given us across culture and time. In his book, Mere Christianity, Oxford and Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis points out that every other universal appetite we can find the appetite for 
food or water or for sex or for love. Every appetite exists because there is something real that will satisfy it. So too would the persevering belief in an afterlife found all across history and culture, says Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We are constantly in danger of submitting to the falsehood that we are merely physical bodies with a complex of biochemical reactions we simply associate with the word soul. We have so become convinced that all life is, all that it consists of is the material, that we buy the idea that we are basically just bodies. Even religious people, you listen to them, they will sometimes speak as if we are mainly bodies that have, you know, this kind of wispy, soulish, spiritual quality to them for a season. But C.S. Lewis puts it right when he says, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. The most real thing about you, the Bible says, is not that organic mechanism in which you move. The most real thing about you is your soul that happens to move that mechanism right now. But as we all know, this mechanism does not last forever. And one day, maybe years out from now, maybe this afternoon, maybe earlier if you die of boredom, as I'm talking, <laughs> your body will die. But your soul will go on. Where you go how you get there, what it's like is what I want to explore with you over these next several weeks. And because time is short today, let me just leave you with four very quick truths we're going to unpack together, just simple ideas to start filing away, and then we'll go after these ideas in much deeper measure in the days ahead. And the first idea is this one. There is strong evidence for an afterlife. There is strong evidence for an afterlife. Belief in the afterlife is not an article of faith, as you've heard. It is a rational conviction, one that is becoming clearer and clearer every year. Physicists, as you may know, are now certain that there exist dimensions of reality beyond the three dimensions that you and I currently move in. They know these external, invisible dimensions exist. They're not able to tell us what goes on there, all that life is like there, but they absolutely know that there is a there that is beyond the here 
And that is decreasingly a matter of question. Furthermore, a large and growing body of testimony now exists from people who have not colluded with one another, who don't even know each other, who haven't even heard stories about the afterlife. Some of them are so young. And yet, they have these experiences. They, their bodies die. They come close as it's possible to come to death and yet are drawn back from that death and they come describing experiences that are stunningly alike one another and remarkably consistent with what the Bible teaches us about the nature of the afterlife. I, I've detailed this, as some of you know, in a message entitled The Light at the End of the Tunnel. It's on our website. It's at our literature rack. You may find it helpful uh, to go and read it. I encourage you, if you haven't picked this one up, grab the yellow book. It's a New York Times bestseller right now. It's called Heaven is for Real. Read it. Tell me what you think. But for students of the Bible, I have to underline this. There is a much more primary proof to which we return to. 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages recorded in the New Testament report that not just a handful of people, but hundreds upon hundreds of people claimed to have met Jesus of Nazareth returned from the afterlife, come back from the grave. And you have to remember when you read an account like this, that these are the same people who ran for their lives at the thought they might get arrested for knowing him. They ran helter-skelter to protect their skin lest they be associated with him. And yet these very same people, as numerous sources I might add, outside the Bible will corroborate. These same disciples then willingly are tortured to death. They go to a torturous death when all it would have taken to save them was to say, just kidding, just made it up, never happened. Why? Why? Because when you've met someone clearly from a life beyond, when you no longer just hope, but actually know that he has the power to take you to that afterlife, death loses its sting, says St. Paul. You may not be excited about it. You no longer fear it. There are so many more important truths that the New Testament shares with us about these things. I want to go after them because I know you've got questions. But let me just hit a couple more. The second is that the afterlife consists of two very different dimensions. One is very wonderful. The other is very worrisome. And I apologize to the ones that are sitting on this side. <laughs> There's not a message for me and you in there. 
All I can say is that there is so much more to the subject of heaven and hell than most of us know. And the Bible tells us about it. More than the movies tell us about it. There's much more than we know. And I hope you'll come back and explore this because we're going to look very closely at that over several sessions together in coming days. The Bible stresses, thirdly, that the manner in which we live now shapes our final destination. And here again, there is a lot of confusion about the nature of the afterlife and what our life today means in connection with that life. Many people are very quick today to say who's in with God and who's out with God and how that in-out happens, but you may be surprised as we actually study what the Bible has to say about this. And I'm going to do my best to try and clear up some of the confusion and the controversy that rages around this stuff right now. If I could leave you, however, with one last guiding truth as we prepare to go on the journey, it would simply be this one. Jesus reveals to us the way to life. The first men and women who gathered with him had a ton of questions, too. I mean, they did. (laughs) They wondered about all of this stuff. As a lot of us do, they probably didn't even dare to speak up. Right? But they had questions. And they began to understand when we meet them in John chapter 14, that Jesus was going to die. I mean, they had pushed that idea away. It couldn't happen, but they could see the forces converging, and they knew that that glorious heartbeat in which they had put their heart's hopes was going to go lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-flatline. And if it could happen to him who had healed diseases and calmed the seas and flicked away demons, what hope was there for them? And then Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And Thomas, thank goodness for Thomas, dares to ask the question, That's on everybody else's mind. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered him, I think gently, Thomas, brothers, sisters, I am the way and the truth and the life. For no one comes to the Father but by me. Everyone can come to the Father through me. Do you want to know 
the places you'll go. Oh, the places you'll go. Do you want to know more about them? Do you want to know about the places Jesus has been to? Because he knows every corner, every detail of the afterlife. Do you want to know how you and those you love and others get there? Then put your trust in him. Don't put your trust in your theology. Don't put your trust in your doctrine. Although I, I love them both. And we'll talk a lot about that. Put your trust in him. In him. Open yourself to what God will show you in his word. Not what you've heard on some blog, read in some other book, what you have heard, what he says to you in his word. For the truth is greater. It is more hopeful. And it is more challenging, sobering, demanding, and inviting than you may yet see. But of this much, you can be certain. Jesus is the way to life now and after. Amen.